Welcome to the Woman-Owned, Woman-Operated Podcast, where we speak with female founders in the trenches of building a business. I'm Ronnie Wise, founder and CEO of Ronnie Wise Consulting. Through this podcast, I hope to share stories, struggles, and successes to inspire you to pursue your passions and support woman-owned businesses. On this episode, I'm inside Meme Restaurant with Irene Lee. With no formal restaurant training, Irene and her siblings launched the Meme Street Kitchen food truck and turned the concept into a restaurant a few years later with the help of a Kickstarter campaign. She talks with me about her Chinese-American roots, the challenges and benefits of a family business, and redefining success in the restaurant industry. I wish my podcast could record smells because I'm inside Meme Restaurant in Boston as they are getting ready for the launch service today. I'm so excited to be sitting here with Irene Lee, who started May May as a food truck with her older siblings, Margaret and Andrew. Thank you so much, Irene, for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. I have uh, seen you in Forbes 30 under 30 list, being honored by the James Beard Foundation, and leading an incredibly fun dumpling making class that I actually attended with my sister and our husbands earlier this year. Um, so my first question is, do you sleep? Yeah, oh, I do, actually. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. I think um, when I was applying for the Forbes 30 under 30 yeah. uh, recognition, one of the questions was, how many hours do you work per week? And I think I, far and away, had the lowest number oh, out of really? anybody who made That's the list. Amazing. And, you know, I feel like I work a lot and I'm always thinking about work, but the amount of time I spend sort of actively being here on my feet is like pretty limited now. Um, My strategy has always been to hire people who are more talented than I am at the things that need to be done. And so I'm just trying to put the right people in the right places. Um, And a lot of people don't believe me when I say that. uh, But then I I talk about like all the TV shows I've binge watched on Netflix. And they're like, okay, you must have some free time if you're like up to date on all of this pop culture and TV. So it's been, uh, I think, a process to develop some balance over the years. Like the first year or two, definitely, like, I don't remember a thing from (laughs) that time period. Just a black period. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like blacked out and woke up and I was like, oh, we have a restaurant now. Um, But I think that's something that I've been working on. Yeah, so I do sleep. (laughs) That's so good and healthy. So what do you think, what early decisions in your life do you feel like led you to this moment? Um, Were there kind of decisions when you were younger or maybe when you were going through school that you sort of realized that this is what you wanted to do with your life? Yeah, that's a great question because I almost don't feel like I made any decisions about this. I feel like circumstances just sort of collided and that's how I ended up here. Um, I'm from a Chinese American family and so food is very, very central to um, our family life. Any time after school, like it didn't matter what you were doing or where you were, but you had to be at the dinner table at six o'clock. And that was true for my dad, who uh, was a cancer researcher and worked crazy hours, and true for my mom, who's also a doctor and worked full time, and then true, of course, for all three kids. So that was sort of um, the center that we were all like orbiting around. So I think that's one of the things. Um, you know, to really connect food with um, comfort and being in community and and with your people, basically. I think that's something that has really influenced my path through life. Um, And then in addition to that, when I was in high school, I actually ended up living on an organic farm in Vermont for about (laughs) six months. And at that time, I actually, I wasn't interested in cooking at all, which is sort of crazy because there were so many great opportunities to actually be in the kitchen, um, but I was really all about eating. Uh, And so, yes. (laughs) I think I would be there too. (laughs) Exactly. And so it's funny because a lot of what happened there in Vermont, I didn't appreciate until later. But I can think back to like one week, my 
morning chore was collecting all the eggs from the chicken coop and washing them and organizing them. And then, you know, those would be the eggs that we all ate at breakfast. Wow. And the bacon on our plates was from the semester before who raised the pigs and then, you know, so just seeing the full circle um, and such a small circle of how all the food there came to be, I think definitely influenced me to, to again, connect food to like a sense of community. And the idea that just like eating food, if you know where it comes from and you know that it has this incredible story, like it just makes the food taste better. So, you know, eating local for a lot of people is a, a moral decision. Um, and I totally am on board with that, but it's also just about uh, pleasure, like Delicious. the food tastes yeah. better. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's one of the reasons that I think local food and, and farm to table has a lot of potential to keep growing. It doesn't have to be about, you know, making a moralistic decision. It can just be like, this food tastes better and I like it more and that's why I eat it. So Totally. Yeah. And so I feel like there are a lot of reasons the restaurant industry is challenging. You know, you often work nights, weekends and holidays. I know you got recently got married. Yeah. So congratulations. Thank you. Um, and you clearly have a close relationship with your family. So how would you say you find that balance, you know, between your business and personal life? And do you feel like that it kind of meshes together? Or are you able to keep them separate? And since, I mean, your family is this business too. Yeah, so that's um, funny. My, my mom might actually walk in sometime later this morning. So <laughs> it's possible we'll have a cameo from her and my brother. Um, but I think, you know, family has been um, a, a blessing in most cases and a curse in a couple cases. Um, I think that we've definitely learned a lot about each other working together. Um, and in recent years, I have sort of taken over more of the operational role. Um, and my brother and sister, you know, they have young kids and they're working on other projects. Um, my sister just finished our cookbook. Um, my brother oh, runs a, a beer catering <laughs> truck um, that has a bunch of taps on it. Super cool stuff. Um, but so as our company has grown, I've sort of taken over more of like the central operations. And I think that that has helped us set reasonable boundaries. <laughs> um, but I also think, you know, when we first opened, I had basically no experience in food. I had worked as a line cook for a few months at a local restaurant. I was very passionate um, and very green, basically. And I think that no one except for my immediate family would ever have trusted me to do what my brother and sister trusted me to do. You know, they, I think, looked at my passion and said, you know, all right, sure, go for it. Like no restaurateur in their right mind ever would have let me do that. Um, and I I wouldn't let me do that now, you know, if I were looking at someone who was in my position. Um, and so I think that's something that you can't, you, you can't put a price tag on, you can't substitute, it's just the trust and I think the desire to see someone grow and evolve. Um, and that was such a big part of opening our business for us. I think it was interesting because you've integrated so many of your passions into your business from the open book profit sharing program you have with your employees to your support of local farms and distributors, things that everyone listening can read all about online. So how do you find a balance between following your passions and making a profit? 
because a lot of those things cost money, you know, paper straws, those, you know, yeah. it doesn't, it's not easy to, Definitely. to do that. Yeah. I mean, this is something that we are working on every single day. Where is the balance between being really profitable and making the choices that we want to make? Because um, on, you know, the, the extreme side, if we were only focused on profit and not working towards any of the values or the vision that we have, what would be the point, mm -hmm. right? But on the other side, we can't make a difference if we go out of business. So it's really about finding the sweet spot and that changes all the time for us. Um, so I think the number one thing is that there have to be creative solutions to the problems that we have. Um, open book management is a great example. Labor cost is super high for a lot of Boston restaurants and you'll hear people saying like there's a shortage of cooks, like what are we going to do? There's no one to hire um, and we can't produce the food we want to produce. And so instead of um, you know, paying people less or cutting down their hours, we get to use open book management to actually engage them in the operation of the business. So everyone here at Maymay learns how to sort of understand those business finances. And we look at the profit and loss statements together. So they get to see everything, how much money we made, how much money we spent, what's left over, how we're doing, you know, as a company overall. And so to me, that's a super creative solution to this problem that, you know, you hire people into your restaurant and if all they do is flip scallion pancakes all day, like they don't really care. They don't care if there's waste or if a customer isn't super happy. I mean, everyone here does care and they did care before open <laughs> book but, but you know yeah. there's this way that it's it's sort of a an entry-level job and and for a lot of people it's just about coming in and doing the thing it's right. not about the bigger picture to get everyone on the staff to really understand the big picture has helped us a lot and kind of thinking back you know the May May food truck began in like 2012 I think I saw and right when I really think the food truck scene was just starting here in Boston so what moment or moments motivated you to take a chance and make May May food truck a reality? Yeah, so when we opened, there were about a dozen food trucks in total on the wow. road. Um, the food truck program in Boston started in 2011, and so when we opened in 2012, we were just in the second year of the program. Oh, okay. I think we got really excited about a food truck because uh, we were watching sort of the wave of food truck culture that was sort of starting in like LA and San Francisco come all the way across the country to the East Coast. Um, the great food truck race was just uh, yes, on that. Food Network <laughs> and um, it's funny you know James from Roxy's who is a very dear friend of ours um, we watched him on TV and we were like that guy's an ass. Like, we could do better than that. And so, you know, we sort of felt like, hey, we, we could represent Boston in a different way. We could represent our culture in this really fun, um, dynamic format. And I think for my brother in particular, who was working in fine dining, it was just something totally different. Um, you know, he could wear a t-shirt every day. Wow, can you even imagine? Um, and then of course, you know, we were interested in some sort of food venture and the startup cost for a food truck it's not nothing, but it's a lot lower than for a full-fledged restaurant. And right, so we right. thought of it as sort of, you know, a test, a test case. Like, let's see if people like our food. Let's see what we can do, if we can be profitable, if we can make this work. Yeah. Um, it was always an experiment. Um, and there was always, you know, risk involved. We were not as prepared as a lot of other people opening <laughs> food trucks. But we figured, you know, we have a little bit of money we can throw at this, mm -hmm. and we have things that we really care about that we want to communicate through our food, so let's go for it, basically. That's amazing. And so what was it like during the first few months of business? How did you build awareness in Boston and the local market and get people excited about what you were doing? Yeah, I think we were really fortunate in that 
there was so much excitement around food trucks among consumers that there was not a lot that we had to do. People were just, you know, going crazy over trying to find the food trucks, trying to try all of them, which was then, you know, very attainable as a yeah. goal. And I think um, that also coincided with the uh, sort of rising consumer interest in locally sourced food. And so those two things combined really meant that people were interested in what we were doing. Um, we also you know, worked really hard to have a presence on Twitter um, and Instagram. And because we didn't have a brick and mortar where people could come all the time and find us, um, we wanted to make sure that anytime they Googled us or looked on our Twitter page, they knew exactly where we were. And they felt like we were being communicative with them. Totally. So, Keeping in touch and, and trying to have a lot of personality through those channels was really important for us. And so I guess, you know, back in 2013, when you were making the transition from the May May food truck to this restaurant, I saw that you launched a Kickstarter campaign and raised over $35,000 from over 300 backers, surpassing your goal of $28,000. Um, I know a lot of people really consider this option, you know, when they're thinking about making a big move in their business. So why did you decide to launch a Kickstarter and what would you say led to its success? For us, the Kickstarter was always going to sort of be uh, like icing on the cake. We had financing for the restaurant already in place and the Kickstarter was sort of to just help us go that extra mile and make those extra improvements that um, were sort of ideal scenarios for us. Um, so we centered the Kickstarter campaign around um, making sort of greenest or greener choices for plumbing and for electric, you know, things that we, we didn't have to do to have a restaurant, but we really wanted to do. Yeah. And so I think we wanted people to trust that no matter whether the Kickstarter succeeded or failed, we were still gonna have a restaurant, but help us make it as awesome as it can possibly be. Yeah. Um, we also really wanted to do the Kickstarter because it's a great way to market a new business. Um, it was an opportunity for us to share our story in more depth with a bunch of people. Um, and I think, I don't know, it's, it's fun to get everyone sort of amped up about seeing a Kickstarter succeed. Um, the other aspect of the Kickstarter and the financing for the restaurant overall was that we come from a family that had pretty significant financial resources for us growing up and also at this point in our lives. Um, all of us graduated from college with no debt, for example. And just, you know, when we were growing up, we were highly enriched children, you know? <laughs> we were like uh, free-range, pasture-raised, you know, <laughs> sports camp, music lessons, and, you know, not everyone has that. And there are so many ways in which we took risks that would have been insane for other people to take if they had debt, if they had family members who they were supporting, um, if they had housing insecurity or food insecurity. And so for me, I think it's important to acknowledge that because a lot of stories of entrepreneurs are just about grit and passion and, you know, I'm sure we all have that, but some of us also, you know, we they have trust funds or they have whatever. and. It means that the equation is very different when you're thinking about risk uh, and, and following your vision. And so for me, part of what we do here is really about making sure that our, our privilege is not squandered by making bad choices. If we can afford to make greener choices or to make better choices for our employees and see if we can make it work, you know, hopefully we can build a model that we can then share with other restaurants. Um, 
So for me, it's, it's really about trying to, trying to open the door and then hold it open behind us um, because there are so many other chefs who represent um, marginalized cultures, who come from different backgrounds, who really deserve a chance to see their visions come to life. And that's one of the things I'm most excited about for the future is being engaged in supporting other entrepreneurs um, who have uh, a dream about the food that's precious to them. Yes. So I think for us, you know, the Kickstarter was a way to capture more support, um, but it was on top of this groundwork that we have always known that we are very fortunate to have. And so I guess when you know you are looking to someone who maybe is looking to make a transition from you know not having a restaurant to having a restaurant, maybe they're a food business or they had a food truck like you did. You know, what types of things would you tell them you know, maybe to expect that they wouldn't be expecting? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing I say is don't skip leg day. <laughs> um, you know, I, I was in decent shape when we opened the, the food truck and then all of a sudden I was like, yeah, no, like I, I really could have stood to go to the gym a little bit more. But it's true that like the toll that it takes on your body, not even just the physical activity, but the stress on top of that is really significant. And it's hard enough to be a new business owner. And if you're also dealing with, you know, throwing out your back or twisting your ankle, like that just adds to it. And so, you know, for a lot of people, they're waiting and waiting for their restaurant to open. I'm like, dude, like hit the gym. You're, you will thank yourself later. Um, and that's definitely something I would have done. Um, Another thing that I think is really important is making sure that your finances are organized before you even really have finances. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there is, we call it uh, like the shoebox of shame, which is basically when you're a new business owner, you have all these receipts and invoices and you don't really know what to do with them and it seems too early to hire an accountant. And so you just have this shoebox full of receipts. Yep, I had and a folder, but. Yep, yeah, totally. Yeah, you see, you you know, we, we all evolve in, in different we ways. Do. And um, it's it's really easy to, to just keep doing that. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you don't have any data. You don't know if you're profitable. You just know you're chugging along. And the bigger that shoebox gets, the more painful it is to dredge it up like it's it's all about shame in this funny way like I remember when we were first starting to work with a bookkeeper and an accountant I was so embarrassed I was like I'm like I'm good at life I don't know why this is so messed up you know and so I think for me um, empowering people around finances and really getting everyone excited about it um, is is super important yeah. so the example that I give is um, if you were to go to a restaurant and order um, an avocado toast uh, for $10 and then the plate comes to your table and you're looking at it and like it looks really nice but you're thinking to yourself like I could have gone to Whole Foods and gotten this plate of food, you know, made this plate of food for myself and only spent like $3 on it. Like this doesn't feel like it's worth $10 and in a restaurant the cost of your ingredients is actually supposed to be three out of ten dollars or about thirty percent and so where are your other seven dollars going you might be wondering and so <laughs> about three more of those dollars go to pay for labor and that means um, the server who came to your table and the person who prepared the food um, it also pays for their health insurance um, their payroll tax their staff meals and any other benefits they have and then of course you know the dishwashers and all the people who are gonna clean up after you um, which is like you know 
the least wonderful part of cooking for yourself at home. Yeah. So another $3 out of that 10 goes to what we call overheads. So the roof over our head, like our <laughs> rent, um, but also stuff like the music that we're listening to um, and the cash register and the credit card processors. And my favorite example is like the toilet paper in the bathroom. We don't charge you extra to come in and use the toilet paper. Yeah, and you so can kind cool. of use as much as you want. Um, and like, so anytime I go into a restaurant and they have really nice toilet paper, I'm like, man, the customer is actually paying for all of that when you buy a $10 plate of food. And I think that it's easy to forget that and to just focus on the ingredients on your plate. For me, I think learning to really think about and understand what you pay for when you go into a restaurant is something that's really important to me um, to be talking to diners about. And I think it just makes your experience so much more interesting totally. when you are thinking about you all that. You see everything. Yeah, yeah, you see the toilet paper. You're <laughs> you like, understand. wow, like, I get this. This yeah. makes sense. I have a new understanding. <laughs> I really do, and I'm going to look at everything so differently now. <laughs>
It really depends on the day um, because, you know, some days I feel like, wow, we're doing awesome. This restaurant is busy. People are happy. They like the food. The employees are smiling. And then there are other days where, you know, I get a crappy Yelp review or we have a big bill that is really going to hurt or something like that. And I feel like, oh, my God, why am I doing this? Everything's terrible. And so, you know, I really do oscillate back and forth between those two extremes. I think on the whole, when I take a step back, I do feel like this has been a success. I don't know if I think of myself personally as successful in that regard, but I feel like we're, we're heading in the right direction. And for God's sake, we still exist. Like this is still a restaurant. It's been five years. Yeah. Um, and so I'm always ready to, I think, pat myself on the back and feel good about that. And at the same time, I just feel like there's so much more we can do. Um, when you look at the industry, to me, the bar for success, it's pretty low. If it's just about staying in business, it's, you know, we, we can do so much more around sourcing, employee welfare, um, environmentally responsible work. Like, there's so much more we can do. And so I want to redefine success as doing more than everyone else is doing and trying to lead the way and show that there's a path to make those choices. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy morning to speak with me and share your experience and perspectives. Um, I also have to thank you for opening this restaurant so close to where I live, which is fantastic. Of course, anytime. <laughs> so, so now I think it will definitely, you know, hang around probably and enjoy an early lunch once Amazing. you open um, before we head back to work. But thank you again, and I can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's <laughs> always fun to get to talk about this stuff. Um, and I just, I guess I have to ask, so what's your favorite thing on the menu right now? Oh, man. <laughs> My favorite thing on the menu is probably um, this little tiny dish um, that's a cucumber salad. It is sweet and spicy and um, is good with pretty much everything. Um, and the, the key is to order it with the crispy garlic panko breadcrumbs on top. It's a special request, but oh. you can tell them at the counter. <laughs> they will do it for you. So they should that's the pro that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the woman-owned, woman-operated podcast. Learn more about Irene and her business at maymayboston.com. A special thank you to Irene Lee from Maymay for sharing her story with us, John Lundman for our beautiful music, my incredible mother who started her own business and inspired me to start mine, and everyone who joins us in supporting women-owned businesses in their communities. Subscribe to our podcast to hear more stories like this one. And remember, when women support women, incredible things happen.